0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We're taking a little trip today to both a time and a place that have not gotten as much attention on our show recently. That's largely my fault. (laughs) My picks for the show have largely been like United States 20th century lately for reasons. <laughs> we'll we'll break out of that rut today. Uh we're going to talk about Spain and its American colonies in the 16th and 17th centuries. And we have to tip our hats to Jason Porath of Rejected Princesses for this idea because that is where we first heard about or at least I first heard about Catalina de Arauzo who was nicknamed the Lieutenant Nun. In spite of being left in the care of a convent at about age four and coming very close to taking religious vows as a nun, Catalina de Arraso wound up living a life of danger and adventure. And a lot of today's episode falls into the general category of exploits. There are thefts and fights and stabbings and narrow escapes, along with a range of kind of suggestive encounters and she either wrote or dictated an autobiography sometime between 1626 and 1630. And while a lot of the historical details in that autobiography have been substantiated, there are other parts that are almost certainly embellished. She has an unbelievable number of surprise encounters with parents and brothers and uncles and other relatives who none of them recognize her as she's wearing men's clothes. Uh, and her employers are just astonishingly forgiving of her habit of knifing people. At the same time, her autobiography also raises a lot of very interesting questions about how to think about her gender, which we're going to talk about in this episode as well.
1: You know, my employers have always been very chill when I knife people. Yeah, I know. (laughs) When I was your boss, all
0: those stabbings, I just looked the other way.
1: I never knifed anyone. This is not an admission of guilt. Um, (laughs) So be careful what we say. <laughs> but Catalina de Arauzo lived during the golden age of Spain. The Habsburg dynasty came to power in Spain following the deaths of Ferdinand and Isabella, and after Christopher Columbus's famed voyage to the Americas beginning in 1492, the nation expanded its empire dramatically. Spain claimed a huge part of the Americas and started establishing colonies there to increase the size of the empire, to send wealth back to Spain, and to spread Christianity to the indigenous population.
0: The creation and maintenance of such a vast colonial empire, especially one that was so often at violent odds with the people already living in the Americas, meant that by the time Catalina was born, Spain had a huge military, Her family was prominent and well-off thanks to inheritances and to the men's military careers. Her father, Miguel, had been an officer and had served in the Spanish colonies before she was born. And all four of her brothers ultimately would serve in the Americas as well. Catalina, the middle child, also
1: had four sisters. And they all had far fewer opportunities than their brothers did. Catalina and her sisters, while still very young, were placed in the Dominican convent of San Sebastian the Elder, where their aunt Ursula was the prioress. And this was relatively typical for their position in society. At the end of their education at the convent, they were expected to either marry or become nuns. Those were the only real options for women in the Golden Age of Spain.
0: Yeah, there were very few exceptions to that. San Sebastian was also the name of the town where she was born. Today, it's located in the Basque Autonomous Community in northeastern Spain. The family spoke both Spanish and Biscayan, which is a Basque language dialect. The Basque ethnic identity as it exists today was still sort of developing when Catalina lived, She refers to herself and others from the region as Vizcainos, and she was basically part of the community that was coalescing into the Basque ethnic group as it exists today.
1: According to Catalina's autobiography, she was born in 1585, but according to church records, she was baptized on February 10th of 1592, making it far more likely that she was born a lot closer to that year. And it's not clear whether she deliberately fudged her age to make herself seem older or whether that was simply an error made when the autobiography was being written down or even just copied. But regardless, she was sent to the convent when she was about four.
0: We know almost nothing about her years at the convent. But when she was about 15 and still a novice, she got into an argument with one of the nuns. This other nun was a widow who had entered the convent after the death of her husband. According to Catalina's account, the older nun beat her, and that is when she decided to make her escape.
1: She got her chance when her aunt Ursula sent her on an errand to fetch her breviary from her cell. So a breviary, in case you do not know, is a book of prayers, psalms, and other religious texts and readings. And normally Ursula's cell was locked, but she'd given Catalina the key. While she was there, Catalina noticed the keys to the rest of the convent hanging on the wall. So she left her aunt's door unlocked, delivered the breviary and the key to the cell door, and not long after, told her aunt she was sick and asked to be excused from prayer.
0: Her aunt let her go, but instead of going back to her own room, she went back to that cell where she took scissors, a needle, thread, some pieces of eight, and the keys to the convent. She then quietly made her way out of the convent while all of the other nuns were still at prayer, carefully closing all the doors behind her until she got outside.
1: From there, she hid in a grove behind the convent for three days, carefully figuring out how to cut apart her clothing and then sew it back together to fashion men's attire. I love this part of her story. Uh, she did a good enough job that she was able to make it to Vittoria, roughly 100 kilometers, about 60 miles away, to the southwest, without attracting any attention. She foraged and scavenged for food along the way. And this was the beginning of many years for her of living as a man.
0: A few days after she arrived in Vitoria, she met a professor who bought her some new clothes and was impressed enough with her knowledge of Latin that he wanted to tutor her. But Catalina did not want to be tutored and turned him down. When he became so insistent that he put his hands on her, she decided again to leave, stealing some coins to pay her way. She continued southwest
1: until she got to Valladolid, where she became a court page and started going by the name Francisco Loyola. She did quite well in Valladolid, working as a page secured her an income, and the king's secretary kept her fed and outfitted well. But one night, her father, who apparently knew her patron, showed up, and he and her patron had a conversation all about how upset he was that his daughter had run away from the convent. And Catalina decided at that point that the wisest move would be to just leave.
0: For the next couple of years, she continued to drift around Spain, winding up in jail at least once after a boy taunted her and she hit him with a rock, and working as a page for a man named Carlos de Ariano.
1: Roughly three years after leaving the convent, Catalina, on a whim, went back home to San Sebastian, attending Mass at the convent, which is where her mother went to Mass as well. And her mother was there that day, but no one, it seems, recognized Catalina. Although one of the nuns did call out to her in some way at the end of the mass, but Catalina pretended not to know her and left.
0: It's pretty unclear from her autobiography whether this nun was saying, hey, I don't recognize you, come introduce yourself, or whether the nun did seem to be like, you look familiar.
1: Or both of those things. Hey, I don't know you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Regardless, though, this visit home was Catalina's last major stop before going on to the Americas, which we'll talk about after a quick sponsor break. After a little more wandering, Catalina de Arauzo went to Sevilla in southwestern Spain, where she met Captain Miguel de Achereta. He was an officer on a Spanish galleon that was headed for the Caribbean. And the galleon was, by coincidence, captained by her uncle. Catalina signed on as a cabin boy, and they eventually made their way from port to Venezuela, where they collected a cargo of silver to return to Spain. At this point, before she left, she had basically made her way from the northeastern corner of Spain to the southwestern corner of Spain over the course of a few years.
1: And up until this point, Catalina's property crimes had been relatively minor. She would steal scissors or a few coins as she made an escape. But that changed when the galleon was ready to return to Spain. By that point, she had been promoted to her uncle's personal servant. And while he was asleep, she stole 500 pesos, told the guards he had sent her to shore on an errand, and left.
0: She used up most of her money while briefly working for someone in Panama who didn't pay her very well, but then she got another job aboard another ship, this time working for a merchant named Juan de Arquiza. After surviving a capsizing and finally arriving safely in port with all the cargo, her job was to forward it on to the people who had bought it, something he trusted her to do on her own, unsupervised, while he went ahead to another town. Once she caught up with them, he was so pleased with her work that he gave her a job in his shop and provided her with her own staff and household help, which included two enslaved people.
1: Similarly to how her petty crimes jumped up a notch in Venezuela, her temper also got more violent in Panama. A man that she identified only as Reyes blocked her view at a theater and threatened to slash her face when she tried to get him to move. And when she saw him passing by the shop the next day... She closed it up, grabbed a knife, and hunted him down, slashing his face instead. She ran into a church to take refuge, but she was pursued by the sheriff, shackled, and taken to jail.
0: This would be the first of quite a lot of fights involving daggers, knives, swords, or other blades, followed by flights into church to take refuge, followed by time in jail. And in spite of the fact that she was pretty clearly the instigator most of the time, her employers kept coming to her defense. Uh, This is what happened this first time. It would continue to happen later on in her story. In this case, her employer talked to the magistrate on her behalf and finally got her released into the custody of a bishop after about three months.
1: But at that point, Catalina was afraid that she would constantly be looking over her shoulder for Reyes to come after her. So her employer proposed a solution. She would marry Beatriz de Cardenas, who was both Reyes' aunt and her boss's lover. And keep in mind, even though she did not identify as a man, she was still living as a man. So all of these people believed... That she would make a lovely bridegroom. Catalina said that there was no way that she was going to agree to this marriage, so Wanda Urquiza offered to transfer her to a store in another town, doing the same work, but out of the path of Reyes or the local police.
0: Of course, this did not work. Reyes and two of his friends tracked her down, and in the ensuing sword fight, she killed one of them. She then fled to Lima, Peru, bearing a letter of recommendation from her former boss, who was still willing to recommend her after all of this, which let her get a job with another merchant there.
1: But that job didn't last long, either. Her employer in Lima was married, and his wife had two sisters living with the family. Both young women were very fond of Catalina. Her employer passed by a window one day and saw Catalina cuddling together with one of these sisters who was combing Catalina's hair and overheard the sister tell Catalina that she should earn enough money to allow them to get married. Her employer confronted her and Catalina left.
0: This would become part of the overall pattern of Catalina's life. In addition to having to leave town after fighting with or killing someone, she also made several escapes after being caught alone in a suggestive way with the wife, sister, or girlfriend of whichever man was employing or sheltering her at the time. As far as we know, all of these folks believed her to be a man— And while her autobiography never specifically says what she was up to with all of these women uh, and homosexuality was punishable by death, it's all written with a lot of implied winking and innuendo. In her autobiography, it's like we should we should know what she means when she says fooling around.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's also very embellished. So who knows? Right. right. Like there's, there's that patina of, um, huh, about the whole thing where you can't quite take any of it at face value. Yep. It's tricky. And eventually though, Catalina left her merchant life and she joined the military. And although she wasn't traveling under her birth name, she did list her real place of birth when she registered. And it turned out that her brother, Captain Miguel de Arauzo, was secretary to the governor of the port of Concepcion, which was Catalina's first destination during her time with the army. And she had not seen her brother since she was two. So, of course, he didn't recognize her at all. But upon seeing where she was from, he did ask for stories from home and how his family was. And that included asking after his sister, Catalina the Nun.
0: This is one of those moments... Many moments in the autobiography that raises some questions. Catalina's family in San Sebastian knew that she had not become a nun, and at this point, years had passed since she had left the convent. So, if her brother was in touch with any of the family at all, logically, by now, he would have heard about her disappearance. So, this could be an embellishment for the sake of drama, or... Given that, you know, it might take a really long time for mail to get anywhere in the 17th century. He just genuinely could not have heard word of his sister's whereabouts.
1: Because Miguel was homesick, he asked for the young recruit from his hometown to be assigned as his personal aide. And Catalina actually served in that capacity for three years until they had a falling out after she went to visit Miguel's girlfriend without him. This led to another fight. Another refuge in a church, another banishment, the end of her assignment as her brother's aide, and finally, a move into combat.
0: Catalina was eventually promoted to the rank of lieutenant, and she served for five years, apparently undetected that she was a woman. There's not a lot of detail about exactly where Catalina served and what she did while serving. But at this point, the Spanish Empire had been at war with the Mapuche people in Chile for decades, Catalina's autobiography writes of being prolific in battle against, quote, Indians, including being put in command after the death of her captain and being wounded, all without being discovered to be a woman.
1: At one point, she hanged an indigenous leader who had surrendered to her, which angered the governor who had wanted him captured alive. Afterward, Catalina was effectively demoted and sent back to Concepcion. And while there, she got into a sword fight after dark and she killed a man who turned out to be her brother. Heartbroken, she once again fled, falling in with some renegade soldiers, working as a pack driver, and then becoming sort of a frontier investigator, tracking down people who had committed crimes.
0: While her autobiography does have a whole lot of stabbings and fights and that sort of thing, it wasn't all terrible. On the way to La Plata, Argentina, she helped rescue and shelter a woman who was fleeing a murderous husband, including dueling said husband in a church, and being rescued from being hauled off to jail once again by two sympathetic Franciscan friars. Around 1623, Catalina got into a fight in Cusco, Peru,
1: with a man calling himself El Cid. And they were playing cards, and he kept stealing her money from her pile. And in the ensuing fight, she was seriously injured. When the surgeon arrived, he was afraid she would die and refused to treat her unless she confessed first. So she told Father Luis Ferrer de Valencia her
0: entire story, and he
1: absolved her of her sins. At
0: least according to her autobiography, this is the first person she told, after a very long time. El Cid tracked her down once she had recovered, though, and after a second fight with him, she tried to get out of the Cusco authorities' jurisdiction. She made it to Guamanga, but the law still caught up with her there. Bishop Augustine de Carvajal intervened in the middle of her being arrested and gave her refuge, once again in a church, And she, once again, confessed her entire story, all 20 years of it since running away from the convent. The bishop, not surprisingly, found her story remarkable,
1: but he also had some doubts. Two midwives were summoned to examine her, and afterward, they both attested that she was a virgin. In a somewhat odd turn of events, the bishop then forgave all her past murdering and carousing and offered to help and protect her. He placed her in the convent of the Holy Trinity in Lima, Peru, while he investigated whether she had actually taken her vows as a nun back in San Sebastian.
0: As they waited for an answer, Catalina became really famous as people started learning all these stories about the, quote, lieutenant nun, or sometimes nun lieutenant, who was being kept in the convent and who had fought in the army for years dressed as a man.
1: Catalina spent more than two years in the convent, and once it was determined that no, she had not officially become a nun, she began making preparations to return to Spain. By coincidence, she met two more of her brothers en route home, and once she got back to Spain, it turned out that her fame had preceded her. Huge crowds gathered to see the lieutenant nun in her men's clothes.
0: She traveled around Europe before seeking an audience with the king, Philip IV, seeking a pension for her services rendered to Spain while in the army. And in 1625, she was ultimately granted that pension, which was 800 escudos. From
1: there, her travels took her to Rome, where she saw an audience with Pope Urban VIII. After he heard her story, he granted her permission to continue living her life dressed as a man, there's some debate about exactly what happened in this audience or whether it's an embellishment.
0: Yeah, I, I found a lot more historical discussion about why he would have made that allowance, which, as we said earlier, was outlawed. Uh, it was also suspect morally on different levels. Um, I found a lot more discussion about what and why and not whether it happened at all. Catalina's autobiography ends not long after her audience with the Pope, and there's not much about her in the historical record beyond that point. As we said at the top of the show, the autobiography was written down somewhere between 1626 and 1630, and either she wrote it herself or dictated it to someone. It's not quite clear. The autobiography itself combines several literary genres that were quite popular at the time. It was part confessional, part soldier's memoir, and part picaresque. Had it been widely published at that time, it really might have become a bestseller, especially given how she became famous pretty much immediately as soon as people heard her story. But apart from a couple of copies, it was lost until the 19th century, and it was published for the first time in 1829. We do know from the
1: historical record that she went back to San Sebastian and signed her portion of her family's estate over to her sister on September 29, 1629. And she returned to the Americas in 1630, where she lived the rest of her life as Antonio de Arauzo, a mule driver. She died in 1650 in Mexico.
0: In prior episodes of the show, when somebody's identity, especially their gender, has been ambiguous in some way, we've generally used the same pronoun that they did for themselves, along with the same name that they actually used in their own life. And we'll talk about why that wasn't exactly where we landed with Catalina after another quick sponsor break. There are a lot of ambiguities and contradictions about Catalina de Arauzo's entire identity, and they're complicated by Catalina's own writings, by the Spanish language itself, and by how people understood gender in 17th century Spain. So typically on our show, as we said, we use the same name and pronouns that the person we are discussing did in their own life, with the only real exception being when it was very clear that somebody was using a different name and pronoun temporarily as part of a disguise, not as a reflection of their own identity. But Catalina really blurred a lot of those lines.
1: Yeah, so during her lifetime, she went by at least four different names. And she also either wrote or dictated her autobiography in Spanish, which is, of course, grammatically gendered in a way that English is not. And that autobiography flips back and forth between the use of masculine and feminine inflections in a way that doesn't always match with how Catalina was actually living at that point in the story.
0: Also, in 17th century Spain, the overall concept of women was heavily influenced by the biblical story of Adam and Eve. And although there were definitely writers and philosophers who were expressing other views, overall, women weren't so much thought of as a different sex from men, but as sort of an inferior version of men, sometimes even being described as an error or a mistake Female anatomy was even framed as an inverted or inward expression of male anatomy, and this was such a different understanding of sex and gender that it makes it challenging for modern readers to even imagine how someone living at the time might have conceived of themselves.
1: English-language translations of Catalina's autobiography, of which three were consulted for this episode, consistently use the pronoun she in chapter titles, and they frame the work as the writing of a woman who was cross-dressing as a man. This is the least anachronistic way to tell Catalina's story. Cross-dressing was definitely a phenomenon when and where she lived, to the point that women dressing in men's clothes was specifically outlawed repeatedly in the Spanish Empire during her lifetime. So what Catalina was doing was both unlawful and taboo, regardless of whether you think of it as a disguise or as an expression of gender which, of course, further complicates the matter of how she would have presented it in her writing.
0: Right, and there's a lot more variety in how scholars writing about Catalina, rather than translating the autobiography, use pronouns and interpret her life. Most, but not all of them, use the pronoun she, while also acknowledging all these layers of ambiguity in her story. A few change pronouns and names over the course of the work— sometimes in a way that winds up being confusing, which is one of the reasons we did not do that in this episode. Uh, Although some work uh, is viewed through a more modern reading of Catalina as a transgender man, none, at least that we have found, use the pronoun he or one of her more masculine names from beginning to end.
1: And there are even contradictions in the historical record, from those last decades of her life spent as a mule driver named Antonio de Arauzo. There are two eyewitness accounts from late in Catalina's life. One is the testimony of Captain Juan Perez de Aguirre, who testified in a hearing about the Arauzo estate in 1640. And in his testimony, he said that all of the Arauzo brothers were dead, except for one who he named as Don Antonia de Arauzo, alias
0: Alfarez Monja. And Alfarez Monja means lieutenant nun. The other is the testimony of a friar who described a 1645 meeting with Catalina, which took place in Veracruz, to another friar. And he made that description later on in their lives. And he talks about seeing and speaking to La Moja Alferez Doña Catalina de Arauzo, who went by the name of Antonio de Arauzo.
1: So in these two statements, one man speaks about Don Antonio the lieutenant nun, and the other talks about the lieutenant nun, Catalina. You'll sometimes also see it written as Catarina, and we're not sure if that's a typo unique to that particular text or not, or if she actually did change up by one letter her name. In that case, he refers to her, but then as someone who went by the name of Antonio. So both statements blend names and genders, and while one starts with Don Antonio, the other starts with Doña Catarina or Catalina.
0: It's also possible that one friar misspoke by a letter. So, long story short, however you look at it, Catalina's identity is really fluid, both in her own words and how other people saw her. And in the end, although there is definitely room for other interpretation here, we settled on using she and Catalina rather than he and Antonio, because that's how Catalina framed her own story. Her autobiography begins, I, Doña Catalina de Arauzo, was born in the year 1585 in the village of San Sebastian. And it ends with two girls calling her Catalina, although, to be fair, after they do that, she threatens both of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it does seem like she was fond of threatening people, regardless of their behavior in some cases. So, oh, yeah, we can't presume that was because she thought they were calling her the yeah. wrong thing.
0: I, what I would really love at this point in my life on, on my wish list of things I wish the universe would just grant to me, uh, is a new translation of her autobiography by somebody who is an expert in both the Spanish golden age and also in uh, like, gender and sexuality and queer history, like, that whole umbrella, yeah. to see what that take on the autobiography would be, because the most recent translation, at least that I know of, is from about 1995 or 96. And at this point, in terms of, like, how uh various historical conversations yeah. around gender and around sexual orientation and all that stuff, like, that's kind of dated at this point. So, it's entirely possible that if, the, that if we were recording this podcast 20 years from now, we would have landed in a totally different place on what to call Catalina de Arauzo and what pronoun to use.
1: Do you also have some listener mail?
0: I sure do. Uh, This is from Rebecca. Uh, And it is a little, it's brief. We're going to talk about the Cuyahoga River um, and Rebecca says longtime listener, first time emailer. I love the episode on the Cuyahoga River fires. My mom's family is from the Cleveland area, and I ended up going to school in Cleveland for undergrad, where I was briefly on the rowing team. The river's still pretty gross. During the transition between winter and spring, the fish in the river get confused because the water has warmed up, but not enough for them to breathe closer to the surface. It wasn't uncommon for dying, desperate fish to jump into the boat or to accidentally or accidentally in air quotes, fling a dead fish at the cocks with your oar. Uh, <laughs> that is simultaneously kind of funny and horrifying and sad. Um, but I wanted to read it just to reiterate that, yes, there is still a lot of pollution uh, in the Cuyahoga River and the Great Lakes and many other waterways in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, also, we've had a number of folks point out to us that when we said the National Environmental Protection Act, that could should have been the National Environmental Policy Act because I typed the wrong word beginning with P in my notes. So that's that correction. Thank you, Rebecca, for writing in. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is history.tumblr.com We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash history And that's also our Instagram is History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and find show notes on every episode that Holly and I have ever worked on together and a searchable archive of the entire body of every episode ever, uh, 99% of the time. If you wonder if we have something and you type it in the search bar, you will find the answer. Uh, you can also come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find all kinds of information about whatever your heart desires. And you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.